Our Old Testament reading today comes from the book of Isaiah, verses 56, or chapter 56, verses 6 through 8. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in the house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called the house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him beside those that are already gathered. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Stacy. Well, good morning again. Uh, my name is Pastor Jordan. I'm the pastor here at Highlands Church. And... Uh, just wanted to, again, welcome everyone and those who are visiting with us this morning and even those online um, who are watching. Um, I had just a couple announcements for, before uh, we get into our time in the Word. Um, Andreas, as he was sharing about ministering in Europe, uh, we may think, and this is sort of uh, entrenched thinking from a generation ago, if it's still with us today, we're thinking, a missionary is going to go to Europe? Shouldn't a missionary go to like some third world country or something like that? But, uh, you know, Europe has largely fallen away from God. And so while um, economically they may be doing okay, they're technically like first world nations, um, the soul of Europe is in bad shape. And so we want to see the gospel uh, go forward. And we're seeing more and more missionaries go to places in the first world because as Europe has fallen away from God largely, there are certainly pockets of faithfulness um, to, to the Lord Jesus Christ, but America is in a process also of falling away from God. And um, maybe we should be less concerned about arresting that slide as being faithful to, um, to doing the ministry, as Andreas said, that God has called each of us to do. And God calls each of us uh, to mission. Uh, to his mission. Um, so thank you, Andreas, for sharing. And um, as he said, he's got some brochures in the lobby, and he'll be sticking around after service just if you want to know more about, about that. Um, the women, I understand, had a, a wonderful event. Um, they're just really good at doing that kind of stuff, and I, I hear it went really well, and it was encouraging, and the speaker was great, and um, yeah, I just want to commend the women uh, for their uh, steadfast faithfulness. Um, they are an important part of this church. And I've said before in the past that, you know, if it was up to us guys, you know, we just, we just kind of isolate and we're just kind of like, hey, how you doing? Good. And, you know, my wife says, you know, you know when you talk to so-and-so, how is their sick aunt? And I'll say, oh, I don't know. They didn't say anything about it. <laughs> you didn't ask them? Oh, well, no. You know. So... <clears throat> <laughs> the women are kind of, you know, the lifeblood of the church, and, and they're kind of the glue that keep us all together, and we're so grateful for their faithfulness and zeal for the ministry. And, um, and as time goes on, um, you know, the Lord will bring much fruit from that. So let's get into our time of the Word. It's Palm Sunday. It's the Sunday before Easter, and um, we're in Matthew 21, 6 through 19. We're talking about three symbols a Palm Sunday. 
So let's read Matthew 21, verse 6 through 19. This is the word of God. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and put on them, donkey and the colt, and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out of the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. And in the morning, As he was returning to the city, he became hungry, and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the tree, the fig tree withered at once, and when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? Father, thank you for... um, for this Lord's Day in your presence and for bringing us all together to hear the word and to worship together. We pray that you would illuminate our hearts by your spirit that we might glean and understand what this passage we've just read is about and that somehow through it we may be drawn closer to you, that we may be more likely like you and that we may be blessed, O oh God, by this story as we approach Easter Sunday next week. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, Jason Bourne is a fictional character of action in film novels who faces the most basic riddle, who am I? When fishermen pull Bourne from the Mediterranean, he suffers from life-threatening wounds and can't remember anything. He thinks in English but discovers that he can speak French and Russian and German whenever convenient. And he has a dizzying array of skills. He can dash for a half a mile at 7,000 feet, tie exotic knots, and create sophisticated electronic devices out of scrap. Disarm a policeman in an instant 
and memorize the city map of Paris at a glance. He knows all this, but he doesn't know his name. And the audience wonders beside him, who is he and why is someone trying to kill him? Well, long before that, the gospel narratives ask the same question of Jesus. Who is this person and why do some people want to kill him? Of course, if Jesus' identity baffled his contemporaries, he still knew who he was. And indeed, during this phase of life, he was performing a series of symbolic acts and teaching in public to show who he is and what faith in him means. And so as Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday to begin the week of his passion leading up to his death, he took decisive action to confront the corruption of the religious system one last time before going to the cross. And some would say that this confrontation is what got him killed. And the first half of Matthew, as we just read, describes three of those symbolic actions. And I want to spend a little bit of time this morning explaining what those symbolic actions meant to people back then and what they mean for us today. There are three actions. Number one, Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey. He temporarily closes the temple and he curses the fig tree. The first act is Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey that had never been ridden. It says in verse 7, they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them and they were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna means save us. And it was a fulfillment of a prophecy given by Zechariah centuries earlier but most people, we, most of us know that. Some don't. But it was a prophecy given by a prophet centuries earlier, but we don't always understand its significance. So perhaps you have spent years going to church on Palm Sunday, and you've heard this story many times, and maybe you even know that it is a fulfillment of a prophecy, but we're not always sure what the significance was. Well, if Jesus had rode into Jerusalem riding a horse versus a donkey, the symbolism of that is the difference between war and peace. In other words, if Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a chariot or a war horse with a battalion of troops, he may have garnered a much larger following than he did. In fact, it's reasonable to think that the people who said Hosanna recognized that he was fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy that the Messiah would come in peace. So some did recognize the way he came into the city. He did not come to establish a military empire, although some wanted that. He did not come as a war leader to cast out and expel the Roman occupiers. That isn't the kind of reign Jesus came to establish. And indeed, when we think about the kingdom of God, that is not the kind of kingdom Jesus leads. 
It's sort of an upside-down kingdom, and Jesus is sort of an upside-down king. All of the ideas that we have about what kingship is, power and might and force, well, that is not how Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem. He came gentle and lowly. And no doubt, some realized that he was Israel's peaceful king. But as it was back then, so it is today. You know, people don't respect weak leaders, do they? We respect strength. When we think about you know, global geopolitics, we don't respect weak leaders. We respect someone's, someone who threatens our enemies with all of America's military might if they defy us. And that feels good. <laughs> After 9-11, we were ready for a strong leader to come and teach our enemies a lesson. And it felt good. We can deny it, but it felt good to know that someone was leading us with a mighty hand. Feels good to hear our leaders say, you know, if you attack us, we'll make your country into a parking lot. And we have the military muscle to do it. And that's the way global geopolitics worked back then, and that's the way it works today. And we get that. We understand that this is the world we live in. This is the way the world is. But as I said a minute ago, Jesus rules a different kind of kingdom. It's an upside-down kingdom that is established not through power and strength, but through weakness. In fact, the power of Almighty God is made manifest in weakness. I mean, you can think about it like this. If I'm strong, what do I need God for? If I've got my life figured out, if I can take care of myself, if I can fight all my own battles, why do I need God? And so the kingdom that Christ came to bring has a high premium on weakness. Because in our weakness, God's strength is made perfect. And it's not hard to see why Israel's leaders didn't respect him, because he was so average and so common. You know, there was a song back in the 90s, some of you may remember, by Joan Osborne. What if God was one of us? Just a slob like one of us, just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home. And you know, when it came out, a lot of people were offended. I probably was too. But it's been, I don't know, 20, 25 years since the song came out, and I actually think it makes a profound point. What if God had none of the trappings of power and prestige? No fancy car or big house. What if he rode on a city bus? What if he rode on a donkey? Would we even want a God like that? And I think that's the power of this story, seeing Jesus ride into Jerusalem lowly on a donkey and not a noble chariot of war and a steed. Would you follow a king on a donkey? Would you follow a God who values gentleness and weakness more than strength, more than your self-sufficiency? Would you follow that king? 
The second symbolic act was Jesus cleansed the temple of merchants and money changers. You know, the temple represented the epitome of Israel's religious system. And the high priests were supposed to be the custodians of its integrity. But it had become corrupt. And in God's design for the temple, there was always supposed to be a place for the Gentiles. The Gentiles, of course, are the non-Hebrews. There was a court of the Gentiles. There was a place for outsiders, for people visiting around the time of the Passover, and those who were not by birth or by right part of Israel. There was supposed to be a place for them to worship. And this is a deep-seated value in Scripture. You may remember that God told Abraham in Genesis 12, I'm going to bless you with many descendants. And in your family and descendants that come from your family, all the nations of the world, the, world, the world will be blessed. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. So that value and that ethic of including outsiders into the kingdom was there from the beginning. Think of the Great Commission, Jesus says to his disciples, to disciple all nations. Of course, the Greek word is ethne, where we get the word ethnic from. All nations, people outside your circle. And so Jesus is thinking of Isaiah in Isaiah 57 and 6, excuse me, Isaiah 56 and 7, which Stacy read, and the foreigners who hold fast my covenant, their burnt offerings, their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called the house of prayer for all peoples. This is in Jesus' mind. This is what Jesus is thinking about. Thank you, Brian. power of my voice just <laughs> blew that thing off. But there was symbolism in this. Symbolism in Jesus taking over the temple and shutting down the merchant trading. The first Symbolic representation is this, is that Jesus was acting as the high priest and doing what the high priest was supposed to do, which is protect the integrity of the temple. And the second thing he was doing was declaring God's judgment on the sacrificial system, paving the way for his once and for all atonement. Now, if these events were not connected with the crucifixion of Jesus less than a week later, that we wouldn't have much context but these events are essentially things Jesus is doing which are infuriating the religious leaders. I mean, it wasn't for nothing that they killed him. They saw what he was doing and they felt the sting of his critique against them. He said, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you made it a den of robbers. Because they had set up the commerce of selling sacrifices in the court of the Gentiles, effectively crowding them out. So if you were a foreigner visiting Jerusalem and you wanted to go into the temple courtyard, you couldn't. There was no place for you because of all of the buying and selling and trading happening in the temple court. What symbols and practices of worship, might Jesus judge today? That's an application question for us. Think about it. 
If Jesus visited churches today, would he protest or boycott our worship practices? What would infuriate him? What would disgust or upset him in the way that the buying and selling in the temple of his day did? Our consumerism, our marketing that specifically targets certain demographics, but in the process maybe leaves out others? I don't know. Like the temple system in the first century, I suspect that there are some things we do that are so deeply entrenched that we're blind to them, right? I mean, just, just as like a, just to invite you in, the leadership, we think really hard, the leadership of this church, we think really hard about like how we can create a worship experience that is faithful and biblical, that honors God, that edifies people. You know, we think, you know, we, you know, we think theologically and biblically and, you know, we, there, there's a reason we do everything we do and I'm sure still there are some things we miss or some things that we think are an expression of absolute faithfulness and if Jesus came, he, be, he may say, yeah, you're, you're way off with that. And that's what was happening. Tom Wright says, what Jesus was doing was setting aside some of the most central and cherished symbols of the Judaism of his day and replacing them with loyalty to himself. In other words, all that we do means nothing if it does not prop up our hearts in loyalty to Christ himself. All of our liturgy, all of our worship, all of our songs, even our preaching and sacraments, if it, if it doesn't prop our hearts up and make us more loyal to him, then there's not much value in it. Even our outward profession of, be, of being Christians, if it doesn't cause us to be loyal to Jesus, there's not much value in it. We may prefer certain styles of liturgy or music, we may take pride in our theology and in our tradition, but what Jesus wants is loyalty to himself, not even a tradition or a style of worship. Those things aren't bad, but they can become ends in themselves. But it's Jesus that is the goal. He's the goal of all of our worship. And the third thing, the third symbolic act is Jesus cursed a fig tree that bore no fruit. Matthew 21, 18 says, In the morning as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. In other words, it looked appealing. It looked like it might provide some fruit. But it had only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered immediately. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled. If the donkey was a commentary on the kind of king Jesus was and the kind of kingdom he was bringing, and if the closing of the temple was a commentary on the corruption of the religious system, then the fig tree was a symbol of Israel itself in the first century. Cursing the fruitless tree symbolized the nation's spiritual barrenness and impending doom. Why? For not bearing fruit. 
That may be the most sobering for all of us, most sobering of these three symbolic actions. The lack of fruit bearing. Earlier in Matthew 7, Jesus said, you know a tree by the fruit it bears. We've all heard that phrase before. You know a tree by its fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and every tree that does not bring forth good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. In Matthew 3, there is the scene of John the Baptist, 16 miles east of Jerusalem, baptizing people in the Jordan River, and the Pharisees and scribes and religious leaders come out to investigate what he's doing, and when he sees them, he says, who has warned you of the wrath to come? Bear now the fruits of repentance, for the axe will be laid at the root of the tree. This declaration of impending judgment. Every tree that doesn't bring forth good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So here's a question we should ask ourselves before we, you know, pat ourselves in the back about how faithful and religious and good we are. Application question, am I bearing fruit? Am I bearing fruit? What would Jesus say to me if I was a representative fig tree? How do we become fruitless? How can we become fruitless? How does it happen? How does, after hearing all these good things about God and maybe reading scripture and going through all these outward motions, how do we become fruitless and barren like this fig tree. Well, God told Ezekiel, my people, sit before you and listen to your words, but they don't put them in the practice. They listen, but they don't put them in the practice. With their mouths, they express devotion. They sing, they worship, they, they worship, they do the, say the liturgy. But to them, you are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice. Ezekiel was a priest and plays an instrument well, for they hear your words, but they don't put them into practice. And Isaiah and Jesus say the same thing. These people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are rules taught by men. You know, the Bible warns of dead religion more often than it warns against lust or murder or any other sins. Warns of dead religion. The Anglican bishop, J.C. Ryle, once said, open sin and avowed unbelief slay their thousands, but profession without practice slays its tens of thousands. Just going through the motions, looking religious, but not having a heart for God. Jesus, time and time again, over and over and over, made this point in his parables and in his teaching that it's the heart that he cares about, a heart for God. Not looking religious outwardly, not acting religious. And religion's not bad. I'm not one of these people who beat up on religion for religion's sake. But it's the heart behind it that matters. And so often we can find ourselves practicing dead religion, where we're miserable. We go through the outward actions, but we don't feel closer to God. We don't feel like our faith does anything for our life. And in fact, I fear that that is what is happening with many young people 
who are falling away from the faith these days in droves. They may grow up in a believing home or the church, and when they go off to college or become adults, they see that their unbelieving friends, they seem to be enjoying their lives, and they think to themselves, well, what difference does it make whether I serve the Lord or I don't? And I've said this many times in the past that in America, the biggest challenge to Christian faith is that there isn't much challenge. We're satiated and materially satisfied. There's a, you know, there's not much challenge. We can, we can walk around with the Bible if we want. There's no, nobody persecuting us. We can download for free 20 Bible apps. We go to church. We do all these things. But Jesus warned against dead religion, against people who had an outward profession, but inwardly their heart was dead. And these three symbolic actions all carry the same message. The king of Israel came to call his people to repent, to repent of the ways they didn't bear fruit. If Jesus rode into our town, to what would he call us to repent of? To what would he call you to repent of? Take a moment and think about that. Jesus came into our city. What would he call us to repent of? What would he call me to repent of? Allegiance, perhaps, to worldly success. The love of comfort which disables us from seeking out the lost. Fruitlessness while having the outward appearance of godliness. Jesus wants to set aside our most cherished symbols as well. He wants to replace them with loyalty to himself. He wants us to boast, not in our traditions or our liturgy or our theology, but him. He wants to be the object of our worship, our devotion, and our heart. He wants us to be loyal to him. He wants us to see that God's power is actually manifested in our weakness, not in our strength. And it's in our deepest suffering and need and weakness that we experience God the closest. So don't lament too much over the hardship in your life, the pain in your life, the tragedy and the suffering. God uses it to draw us close to him. And it is in those moments of deepest suffering that we see God face to face, that we come near him, that we understand his very heart and the very heart of Jesus and his own suffering. He wants us to move toward him. He wants us to move toward others, toward outsiders, the foreigner. He wants us to bear much fruit, all for his kingdom and for his glory. This week, as we enter into Holy Week, as we think about and hopefully read about in our Bibles what happened in the Gospels the last week of Jesus' life, hopefully we are able to grab a hold of a clearer picture of who Jesus is and what he was about. That as we enter into and come upon the end of the week in Good Friday, we'll meet here Friday night. We will explore Jesus' own passion and suffering. 
And we'll come into Sunday with that mourning in our hearts and understanding of the suffering that Jesus experienced for us with a renewed appreciation of the life that he brings through his sacrificial atoning death and resurrection. Let's take a moment and pray that the Lord would touch our hearts this week. Father, this Palm Sunday, as we think about who Jesus is and what he really cared about, help us to think about who we are and what we really care about and whether or not our profession of faith is just an outward show, a culturally convenient identification, or whether our hearts are really loyal to your son Jesus, our Savior and Messiah. Touch our hearts with the reality and the profundity that God became lowly, that God rode on a donkey, that God became a man. And it was not among the power brokers of his day, but among the lowly, the rejected, the poor, those on the margins, those who had very little voice that he came to dwell among. And it is partly for that reason that he was rejected. Help us to think upon these things, O oh God. Touch us in our hearts as we come into Holy Week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.